insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Hello, and welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling your friends. Thank you for calling 888-914-9149. We'll get you on the air with your comment or question. Do appreciate hearing from you. 888-914-9149. That number is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Emails, send them to me at patrick at relevantradio.com. Now, I have a note here that came in recently. This is from Kelly, and Kelly's listening in Phoenix. And it has to do with Mahjong. And when I first told Cyrus about this one, he said, Ma, Ma what? Mahjong, what's that? And then you looked it up, right, Cyrus? Now you know what Mahjong is, right? I, I had to have you spell it for me. <laughs> I've heard people say Mahjong. I've heard different pronunciations of it. So I'm just assuming it's Mahjong. I mean, what do I know? Never played it. So I had to do a bit of background research, Kelly, in order to be able to give you this response. So here's Kelly's note. She says, first of all, she likes the show. She learns a lot. Thank you for that. I had got together with a few old lady friends. That's in quote marks. Don't anybody get riled. I got together with a few old lady friends to play Mahjong. They play together in a casual social setting. It was my first time playing. My Catholic friend then let me know that it could be a game of the occult and I should proceed with caution. I was so surprised because I have never known, based on the day that I went, it, I would have never known based on the day that I went. It was a simple tile game with no references to anything dark, from my understanding. I don't mess with astrology, etc. I know better, but this shocked me. I couldn't find anywhere online to find out about Mahjong and the Catholic Church like I could in regard to other topics uh, I will ask our priest, but I also wanted to reach out to you to see if you've heard of this. I want to do what is right and safe. I know the devil can work in manipulative ways. Thank you so much in advance. Well, I I remember, Kelly, first of all, when I was working in retail long ago and far away in an earlier life, and I worked in retail for several years, and I remember the Mahjong craze that swept the the stores in the 1980s. And so let's say in the early 1980s, these games were on the shelf in stores that I worked at, but I never, I never paid them. No, never mind. I never, I sold them. I looked at the product box when I stacked them on the shelf, but I never gave it any consideration. I never looked into it, never played it, never was interested in playing it. This is just my own personal limitation, I guess. But I don't like, I mean, I don't hold anything against anybody who likes card games or tile games or rummy cube or any of those things. It's just, I don't have the mind for it. I'm not drawn to it. So I've never played any of these games. Cyrus, I'm, I'm okay at Uno. FYI, if you ever sit next to me in Uno, look out. So dominoes isn't your, isn't no. your game, huh? Mm -mm. Yeah. No, not poker. No, not euchre. Not, uh. Like hand and foot. Uh, I don't even know what that is. Canasta. <laughs> sounds like a disease. Uh, canasta. Is that a tile game or is that a card the, game? Those are card games. Yeah. No? The, the only tile game I've ever even heard of is Dominoes. Well, and Mahjong. <laughs> and now today. Mahjong. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> I bet a week from now you're going to be into it. You'll be playing Mahjong like the uh, video poker. Do you play video poker? <laughs> I don't play video no. poker, no. No. How about Solitaire? 
Oh yeah, I'll play. I'm I'll play solitaire. I've been playing that my whole life. I don't even know how to play it. That's a great game. I see people who you know. Truth be told, and not at relevant radio, by the way. <laughs> when nobody's looking, they're in their cubicle playing solitaire during the workday. Anyway, so all of this to say, Kelly, uh, not being a card player myself and being in a family where a lot of people, not Nancy so much, but a lot of other people just really love these kind of games and they'll play them endlessly. I, I don't feel drawn by them at all. So I don't know, I didn't know until just recently anything about Mahjong. So I looked it up. And suffice to say that the Wikipedia entry is probably longer than almost any Wikipedia topic I've ever seen. It's very lengthy. And it talks about all the different permutations of Mahjong. It comes out of China, the cubes, the cards, the, the characters, bamboo, dots, east, south, west, north winds, red, green, white dragons. Um, it, it's just very elaborate and it just puts me to sleep reading this wikipedia article for me is like anesthesia it's just it just puts me to sleep no offense anybody i mean this is as i say it's my limitation it's just something i never really got into so i went through this and i cannot find anything in here that would suggest any type of occult connection it talks about the history of it the different ways it's played in different parts of the world, um, rules, you name it, it's in there. But at the very end, there is a little section, it's not very long, called superstitions. So I thought, okay, well, here's what this section says. Even though both skill and chance play a fundamental role in the game, there is no shortage of superstitions in which players believe where they sit, how they hold their pieces or objects, they have on their person will somehow affect the outcome. For example, players will try to find seats with the best feng shui or wear their lucky clothing on trinket or trinkets. Some believe that specific pieces like one dot, for example, is bad luck if you get it in your opening hand. More elaborate superstitions in Mahjong range from those found in the game poker, such as not counting your wins and losses to, uh, not, to, to uh, feeling like you have to change your underwear after a loss. I don't know what that means. Don't want to know what that means. As with all superstitions in gaming, none of them have been properly demonstrated as effective, though for some, the rituals have become an integral part of the game experience and, and its aesthetics. So that's that's the worst of it that I could find, Kelly. And granted, this is Wikipedia, but believe me, this is like a, a scientific treatise practically Unless you like Mahjong, in, in which case you'll probably really get into it. So long story short, I can't see, at least from this source, anything that would suggest any type of occult connection. Could somebody try to tie it up with the occult? Sure. You know, for those people who feel like they, in order to have good luck, they have to change their underwear after losing a round. <laughs> that's, a, that's a superstition, not going to help you. Um, but that's it. But you can see that in many other sports as well. You know, people who feel like unless they do X, Y, or Z or wear their lucky socks or the ball cap or whatever that, they're, that they'll lose. I mean, that's just superstition. That's the worst that I could find. So from what I can see, Kelly, it looks like you're all clear for you and your old lady friends. And I know you meant that tongue in cheek. Thank you for that. 888-914-9149. 
Is it okay to buy into some superstitions? Like it's I I've got my lucky Packers shirt and I wear it during Packer games and uh, I mean, does that matter? Is it if no. if I know it's I'm, I'm just goofing off? Yeah, I, I I don't think that matters. Human beings, we we like to do certain things. I'm trying to think of just to think of something in my own life that I could relate to that. Um, I never had like a lucky shirt or a lucky ball cap or anything like that. I wonder if maybe some baseball players occasionally you'll see a an MLB baseball player make the sign of the cross before he swings when he's at bat. And I've wondered if at times that might be considered a good luck thing. I mean, I'm guessing probably Catholic, but I wonder if, you know, if I don't make the sign of the cross, I'll strike out because sometimes those little superstitions can creep in, but no, I don't think that there's anything at all problematic with wearing your lucky Packers shirt. As long as people understand, and I know you do Cyrus, that, Wearing or not wearing a shirt is not going to make the Packers win or lose. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that didn't pan out for me too well. <laughs> what about those guys that, that strip to the waist and they paint their bodies the color of the team? Especially, it's it's mind-boggling to me when they're in like sub-zero temperatures stripped to the waist. And they're usually like really big fat guys with beer bellies and they paint their bodies you ever noticed that? You ever I see did that it Packer one country? time, Patrick, and you'll never let you me did? forget it. You did that? <laughs> no. You got any pictures? No. I, no, I hate the cold. But yeah, those. what are they doing? I always wonder, it's like, they, there must be a lot of alcohol in their system for them not to feel how huh. cold it is. Now that's a stretch. You really think so? <laughs> have, you, yeah, have you been to Lambeau Field in December? Uh, I've been, yeah, I've been there. Only for a Paul McCartney concert, though. So... Yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of people have little, I'm trying to think of just superstitions in general. Yeah, there's a lucky rabbit's foot. I always thought about that when I was a kid. I was like, well, it wasn't very lucky for the rabbit. No, no, that wasn't lucky for him or her. You got, I wonder if they just said, okay, it's just one paw per rabbit. Can you imagine a rabbit? (laughs) Oh, just a horrible thought, you know, that the lucky rabbit's foot industry was maiming rabbits. That's terrible. That is terrible. Mm, man. Yeah, lucky rabbit's foot, um, lucky shirt, lucky lucky socks. Oh, some baseball players, they won't shave their beard for fear during the season, for fear that that might break their winning streak if they shave their beards. I've seen that before. But things like won't walk under a ladder or avoid 13 or a black cat walking in front of you or throwing salt over your shoulder, things like that, breaking a mirror. None of those things will bring you bad luck. No, it's just superstition. So I think the Packer shirts are okay. I mean, who am I to judge anything? But I, if I had to guess, I'd say you got no problem with that. Well, it's not lucky anymore. So it's problems, problem solved itself. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I have a note here from uh, a an LDS listener, and I... I hesitate to say your first name. In fact, I think once before, I also did not say your first name because I don't want you to get any heat or judgment from uh, any of your co-religionists who might try to discourage you from listening to this program. No heat, no judgment. That's right. That's how we roll around here. So I think you'll know who you are when I read your email. And this has to do with the Trinity. And I spent a little time talking about the Trinity in the last day or two. 
And he says, Dear Patrick, I want you to know that I am still listening. I appreciate a lot of what you talk about. I want you to know this. I appreciate you a lot. This is from a Mormon listener, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's the official title. He says, I want you to know I've earnestly considered your words, and I must say that we're going to have to disagree about the Godhead or Holy Trinity. I really can't reconcile what you have said about the Godhead. I know that you are a well-read man and intelligent, thank you, but oftentimes great learning can lead to views based on rationality and not the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong, I respect your views on most things. Ever since I started listening to you, I have felt the Spirit of the Lord in many cases. I aver that God, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are separate beings, he says. Heavenly Father is the Father of our spirits, and that is why He loves us so much. We are His literal offspring. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, because He loves us so much. One day, you and I will be at the judgment bar of the great Jehovah, and at this time we will know the truth of all things. And he concludes by saying, I wish you well, and I respect your views. You didn't waste your time in responding to me because I considered what you said very well. Very gracious and kind email. So thank you, first of all, for taking time. And I do appreciate the times when you do write to me every so often. I am aware that we have a significant number of LDS listeners, Mormon listeners, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I appreciate that. There have been times over the years when I've been at speaking events, for example, and a Mormon gentleman or a husband and wife couple will come up and say, we're Mormon, but we listen to your program every day and we appreciate it. So thank you, all of you, whatever your background may be. So I will just say this in response. I recognize that the Catholic teaching on the Trinity, which goes back to the early church, is difficult to understand, even for Catholics, because it's impossible to imagine it. Now, just think about this for a moment. As human beings, we are creatures who have body and soul, yes, and in our intellects, we receive information from our senses. So you get information from the world around you, just like I do, from your five senses, what you see and touch and taste and smell, etc. So the way the human intellect works is that you're getting physical inputs, things that you see and things that you touch, etc. But those have to be, you might say, converted into an idea. And the way that happens is the imagination creates an image of that. So if I said to you, lasagna, well, in your mind, you have an idea of lasagna. You have an image of it. You can imagine what it tastes like. You know what it looks like. You've maybe cooked it or your wife has cooked it for you. You've gone to a restaurant. You've had lasagna. Now, you don't need to have seen or tasted every single possible lasagna that was ever made in order to have an idea of lasagna as a category, as an ideal. And that's what your imagination does, mine too. So the imagination produces pictures, and this is how most people live their entire lives, is they, they understand things based on, the, on what they can imagine about it. Which is why, for example, if you go into Catholic churches in any part of the world, this is not uncommon to see, you'll see depictions of the Trinity as an old man with long white hair and a white beard. You've seen that, Cyrus, haven't you? The, oh, the yeah. God, the Father. Oh, yeah. Everybody's yeah. seen that. 
old man, white hair, white beard, and then Jesus as young man, dark hair, dark beard, and a bird as the Holy Spirit, a dove. Now, we read about the dove in the Gospels. The Holy Spirit did descend upon Jesus when he was baptized in the River Jordan under the appearance of a dove, but the Holy Spirit is not a bird. It was a symbol, it was a manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit when Jesus was baptized by St. John the Baptist. But, but the appearance should not make us think that therefore the Holy Spirit is a bird. It, it's a way for the human beings who are standing there observing what was going on for them to realize that the Holy Spirit was made present, present and his presence was seen or perceived in the form of a dove. But again, he's not a bird. So we don't reason our way in that direction and say, well, we saw the Holy Spirit alight upon Jesus when he was baptized. He was in the form of a dove. Therefore, that must mean that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is a bird. You, you can obviously see the faultiness of that way of thinking. So back to the imagination. Here's the thing I want to share with you about the Holy Trinity. We can't imagine it. And that idea of an old father God with long white hair and a long white beard and a crown, and then Jesus, whom we have seen in the flesh, he did come to us as a man, and most depictions depict him with long, dark hair and a dark beard. No photographs, but at least that's sort of the common understanding of what Jesus must have looked like. And the Holy Spirit by way of convenience, in the form of a dove, because this is what the Holy, the Holy Spirit appeared as in the Gospels. But that's not what God looks like, as God, the, the triune God, doesn't look like that. We can't imagine what God looks like. He transcends time and space. Now, I realize here, too, we have a disagreement, because as, as a Mormon, you, I know that you do believe that God is a, an exalted man, as Joseph Smith described it. And, you know, we could have that discussion at some point. But this is why I would just say, even though you've heard me talk about the processions of the persons in the Trinity and the Father eternally begetting the Son and all of these things, these are more theological principles, they defy the imagination. They defy our ability to imagine what this is like because there is nothing else like this. There is nothing that you and I could touch or see or in some way with our senses perceive, as we do other things, that could then give us this idea in our mind of what the Holy Trinity actually is like. That's why this is difficult. And that's why many people, with all due respect, might say, well, I don't believe that. And the real reason is because they can't imagine it. And you shouldn't feel bad because I can't imagine it either. I can't imagine a lot of things that I know to be true, and that's true just of human beings in general. So keep at it, keep thinking about it. Um, I, I testify that the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost um, are not three separate beings. Um, the Heavenly Father, God the Father, is our Father, but not in the way that some people think, that he literally procreated with spirit wives. I don't believe that. And over time... I'm really grateful that you spend as much time as you do thinking about it, pondering it. And I would just respectfully say, please continue doing that. I gave a copy of a book. I'll leave it at this because I have to take a break. Um, I gave a copy of a book called Theology and Sanity 
by Frank Sheed to a Mormon philosophy professor I had long ago. This is when I did my first undergraduate degree. And he was a, you know, a very devout Mormon fellow, father of a large family, and I being very interested in the topic of his religion and all that, and being a Catholic myself, we had many interesting conversations. I learned a lot from him, and I wanted to give back by giving him a Christmas gift. So before we went on Christmas break, I gave him a copy of this book, Theology and Sanity, because it has a really good explanation of the Trinity. And after the Christmas break was over, when I saw him in class again, I said, so did you have a chance to take a look at that book I gave you? And he said, oh, my gosh, yes, I did. He says, if you're interested, you know, come to my—and it was actually to his home. He invited me to come to his home, and and I did, and met his wife, and took he took me into his library, and it was filled with all kinds of books. He was a very erudite man, and he got that book off the bookshelf— and much to my happy surprise, it was heavily marked. I mean, he had used his highlighter pen, he had underlined sections, he had written notes in the margins. I mean, he clearly spent time reading this book and thinking about it and interacting with it, which was more than I hoped would happen, but I was so happy about it. And I said, so what do you think? And he said, well, I'll tell you this. I never knew what you Catholics and other Christians meant by the Trinity. I always had these ideas of what I thought you meant by the Trinity, one God and three persons, which is basically just really three gods. And he says, I, I, all my ideas about what I thought you meant were done away with when I read this book, because now I finally understand what you really mean by that. And I said, and? and like, I, and? And he says, and I can't refute it. He says, I can't, I tried, but I now that I understand it, I can't refute it. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this guy's going to become Catholic. And he said, but I could never leave the Mormon church, ever. He said, I'd lose my wife and my family and all that. And he says, furthermore, and this is where we'll take our break, he says, I also can't argue with the fact that when I was 15 years old and I was thinking about becoming Mormon, he wasn't raised that way. He said, an angel appeared to me and told me that Mormonism was true. And he says, I can't argue with that. Therefore, no, I could never become Catholic, but I do recognize now this doctrine of the Trinity that I just don't know how to refute. And that's where we left it. And I've often thought of him and wondered, you know, what became of him and if he ever gave further thought to this issue. All right, with that, we'll take a break and we'll come back. If you want to call and be on the program, call this number, 888-914-9149. We'll go to your phone calls right after this. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester, an Illinois life insurance company not available in all states. Keeping it relevant. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Join the conversation at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid is on. Come-
Coast to Coast on Relevant Radio. That's right. 888-914-9149. Let's go to Jane now in Bedford, Virginia. Hi, Jane. Oh, hi. My question hi. is, when there, when there is an accidental sacrilege, is there a well-defined procedure where the parish is, is instructed to immediately kneel and pray while the, uh, you know, the real presence is properly cared for? I, no. I couldn't find anything. No, there, yeah, there is not. There's not a prescribed method for doing this, and typically, when it's an accident, like you know, the host falls off someone's tongue and then falls onto the ground, or maybe the priest, in his effort to put the host in the in the mouth, um, the host may fall. I mean, these things happen, unfortunately. So. I, I understand the idea behind reparation, but there's really nothing to repair if if there's an accident. So reparation would be appropriate, of course, if somebody intentionally blasphemed the Lord and profaned a host. That would be reason to do reparation. But no, there is no church-prescribed ritual or anything like that. Common sense would dictate, and I've seen this done any number of times, if a host falls on the floor, the first thing that should happen is that it should be covered, and typically that might be with an altar cloth, so that nobody tramples on it. And then when the priest comes over, he would take the host, consume it, and then sprinkle holy water, or it could even just be water. It doesn't have to be holy water. Um, but just sprinkle water over that area and do the best to wipe any remaining particles that might be there. Then that altar linen would go into the sacristy, and then eventually be cleaned, it, it would probably be soaked in water to dissolve any remaining particles so that when the, the properties of bread are no longer bread, then the real presence of the Lord is gone. So then you could, you could safely launder that altar linen. Uh, if the precious blood spills something similar, you would, want, you would make sure that it's well uh, washed with water so that any remaining traces of the precious blood would be cleaned up, and the real presence of the Lord wouldn't be there. So something that would show respect for the Lord and quickly to make sure that the spill of precious blood or the host itself was removed in a dignified way, that's typically how it's done. So um, making people kneel and do prayers of reparation in that kind of a scenario I don't think is something that you would likely see a priest call for. Does that make sense? Yes. My thoughts were there was so many people, I'm not saying this is true in most parishes, I'm in a devout parish, uh, but uh, I'm hearing that, uh, you know, the conversations on the web that so, like up to 70% of Catholics don't really believe in transubstantiation and the real presence. If we would kneel after an accidental sacrilege, it would reinforce the reality of his real presence. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good thought. I don't disagree with you. We can't show too much reverence for the Lord, that's for sure. We mm-hmm. could not show enough reverence, and that's not good, but we can't, we can't be at fault with an excess of reverence for Jesus. So, yeah, I've heard the same statistic, and I've heard various statistics claiming that X percent of Catholics no longer believe in the real presence. And I know that there was a survey that was done some years ago that's usually the one that's quoted. But we ourselves have the 
ability to to change people's attitudes for the better with our own effort to show reverence because other people do notice that and it does rub off. Um, mm-hmm. So the more that the parish, the pastor emphasizes reverence, the more reverent the people will be. I'll give you an example, Jane. I came and spoke at a parish in, in Vineland, New Jersey. And I'd never been there before. And I think this was around 1990. And years later, I was invited to go back to that parish by a different priest who became pastor, I don't know, 10 years later. So he invited me to come back. I came back, I gave um, my Saturday event, and I was surprised, happily surprised, because every single person who got into a pew when they got in before Mass started, they genuflected, and everybody who went to communion genuflected. And I had not seen that before, and that wasn't customary in that area. And mm. I hope that that, that that custom still obtains in that parish. I don't remember the name of it now. But I asked the priest, I said, that's amazing. I don't typically see that. And he says, well, when I got here as pastor, I just told them, we respect the Holy Eucharist here, and our custom is going to be everybody's going to genuflect uh, before receiving Holy Communion. And I forget the precise details. But he simply led by example, and the people followed. There may have been a few people who were not happy about it. I don't know why, but uh, before too long, everybody was doing it, and it was normal. And I could really get a sense that the reverence for the Jesus and the Holy Eucharist was strong at that parish. So that may feed into the point that you're making there. Thank you for that, Jane. I appreciate your phone call. How about Jared now in Orem, Utah? Good morning, Jared. Hi, Patrick. Hi there. Hey, uh, I just wanted to encourage you in what you're doing. I I was so? uh, LDS for over 30 years mm-hmm. and then became a Protestant pastor. And then on this uh, Christmas Eve vigil uh, this last year, I became a Catholic. Oh, so, happy to hear that. Welcome home. So <laughs> uh, I know that you think about, you know, people that you've talked to um, about the Trinity and things like that. Just know that, you know, nothing goes out there that doesn't bear fruit Mm. Um, and that there are people like me who get to hear things, who get to actually see the truth and who are in it. And it is a sacrifice. I did lose, you know, friends, family, job and things when I left Mormonism, but just like, you know, Paul says, I count it all as lost to have the truth. So. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm, I have some questions for you. First of all, what was it that, as you were a Protestant pastor, what was it that sort of was a catalyst for you to look beyond where you were at that point? Weird enough. Um, so YouTube algorithms, um, hmm. they placed a few videos in front of me that I wouldn't have normally watched, and I watched them and then discovered uh, the Church Fathers. I had my yeah. MDiv, but when you get that as a Protestant, you study, you know, basically Luther on in church history. (laughs) And uh, so I actually read uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch's letter to the Smyrnans. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, I'm the heretic. Okay. (laughs) Check. Um, Yeah. The Church Fathers in for the win every time. If people are willing to read the Church Fathers, you you can't argue against it. They were Catholic. There's no, no question. 
Yeah. And it was early. It wasn't some made up thing. So, yeah. 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 So did you have, um, I would imagine that leaving Mormonism was tumultuous for you, but I imagine the same was true for leaving Protestantism as well, huh? Yes, very much. Mm-hmm. Very much. I, uh, the people who mentored me as a, while going through school and everything else are, I mean, I won't mention names, but they're yeah. fairly popular um, Protestant apologists. And I might even know who also, some of them are. Don't tell me, but I might even know who some of them are. You know, what I, was their reaction? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much anathema now. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you're an anomaly to them, because those same people, I, I can imagine who some might be, and and I believe they're sincere and convinced and all that, but for you, you're an anomaly because they are so convinced that the Catholic Church is evil and, you know, a corruption of true Christianity, etc., that for somebody to see it for what it really is, is incomprehensible to them, that, that you would read the Church yeah. Fathers with an open mind and and recognize the Catholicity of the early Church. It's just beyond them to imagine that anybody could do that. So I can only imagine the kind of comments you might have received. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I... It's the whole Romans one thing, you know, claiming yourself mm-hmm. to be wise, they become like fools. Um, mm-hmm. They think, you know, I I mean, they think that we can read the scripture and come up with the true gospel. It only took Martin Luther, what, 1,600 years? So <laughs> they, uh, you, it's, you're right. I am, an, I am an anomaly, but I think the truth is that Protestants don't even know what they're protesting against anymore. It's like Fulton Sheen said that only probably a thousand people dislike the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. but millions hate the Church based on what they think it believes. Once I let Catholic sources tell me what Catholicism believed, I realized it was straight in line with what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And after taking the Eucharist, I will say that it was, I, I just felt complete. The thing I had been looking for forever throughout my life was found. Mm-hmm. And the peace from that is unbelievable. How does listening to relevant radio affect your faith life now, Jared? It it helps me um, deepen it. It it gives me spots where I need to study more. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because you know I, I I can read the Bible backwards and forwards. I can read it in Hebrew and Greek and things mm-hmm. like that. But it's like look at what this church father said, or look at what this saint did, and I'm like, oh, well, let me go study that further. That's something I haven't grasped. So it really helps in my faith. Well, that's really great, and I'm I'm happy for you. I'm happy that you called in today. It's great that you're sharing this with us. There is a fellow on Twitter. I don't know if you're on Twitter, but if you are, there's a guy who's um, just trying to pull up his account here. He's a a former uh, Protestant who became Catholic, and he's very erudite. And (laughs) wouldn't you know it, I'm not quickly finding Hmm. his Twitter feed. But tell you what, we're going to take a break, and if you'll keep listening, when we come back, I'll announce... I feel feel embarrassed that I can't remember his name. What's that? It's all good. Yeah. So just stay tuned if you don't mind, and I'll share that. And I have a feeling you and he would be kindred spirits, and he has a a very interesting kind of boldness about the things that he posts, and it's apologetics in nature, but primarily the Church Fathers. 
and pointing out okay. just how Catholic the early church was. Yes, Jared. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Okay. All right. I will have his name for you right quick. Thank you, Jared. And keep on trucking, man. I'll be right back. Today, we'd like to thank Vincent, who's listening in California, for donating his 1971 Chevy El Camino. Right on. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Get connected to the conversation. Call now, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid is on now. Relevant Radio. Okay, I remember, I'm sorry I forgot it in the first place, but the gentleman on Twitter who produces some really good quotes from the church fathers showing how Catholic the early church was, his name is Joshua Charles, and that's the name. So if you look him up, it's Joshua T. Charles, converts the Catholic church from Protestantism, and that's the interesting thing about his Twitter feed is that he talks about what it's like now as a Catholic to see All these things that he not only didn't see when he was a Protestant, but also that he was told weren't true. Oh, the early church, they didn't believe in all that Catholic stuff, like the Eucharist and baptismal regeneration and things of that nature. And then the more he studied the church fathers, the more he realized, well, it's exactly the opposite. That is what they believed, and the reason they believed that is because they were Catholic and called themselves Catholic, etc. So Joshua T. Charles. Never met him. He seems like a great guy, though. Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Harold in Queen... I'm going to try it again. Harold in Queen Creek, Arizona. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. Yes, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, Patrick, I have a quick question regarding angels appearing to people. I remember one day I was talking to a co-worker who is a Muslim. He was telling me about uh, Mohammed, uh, there was an angel that appeared to him and it was telling him what to do and all that. Mm-hmm. And then I remember about Joseph Smith with the Mormons that there was an angel that appeared to him too, or in the dreams. And also I remember what you just said about this new new call or, or the letter that you got from this guy. <clears throat> oh no, I'm sorry. You were explaining how this guy did not change to Catholicism because he, uh, an angel appeared to him and told him that the Mormon is the true religion. So my question to you is, is it possible that angels, falling angels, are the ones that are contradicting the Catholic Church and appearing to people to get confused? And how can we discern if it's an angel from God or from the devil? Thank you. You're welcome. These are good questions. So let's say, number one, that God does send his ministering angels, uh, the good angels, to, to deliver messages. We know that from Scripture the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, communicating God's plan to Zechariah, and then shortly after that to the Blessed Virgin Mary, just to name two examples. So as a biblical principle and the the apostolic tradition principle, yes, God does do this. We also know, and St. Paul warns about, the devil appearing in the form of an angel of light, which would be a way of saying that he could appear in a way that gives you the impression that he's a good angel as opposed to the evil one. 
and that he can try to seduce and and confuse and lead astray people who pay heed to him. So this is why St. Paul says, if even an angel of light should appear to you and preach a gospel other than the one that we have preached to you, let him be anathema. So there, there are warnings to that effect. Now, as for the exact claims of, of Muhammad, for example, that the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him, recite, which is what the word Quran means, and the claim is that the angel Gabriel dictated, in essence, all of the Quran to Muhammad, and then his scribes, they wrote down what he dictated to them. And he said, this is what the angel Gabriel told me. I'm going to recite this. You're going to write it down. That's the pedigree of the Quran, or at least that's the claim. Now, there is a similarity here. It's not a close similarity, but there is a similarity with Mormonism insofar as the claims of angelic appearances to Joseph Smith are part of the the story of how Joseph Smith claims that he was chosen as the prophet of the Restoration, that those plain and precious things that were lost in the Bible because of the Catholic Church, etc., and the truths of the gospel that were lost because of the so-called great apostasy would be restored by him, and this involved, he claimed, the visitations of various angels who came to him and told him things. Uh, he says that he did have a vision of God the Father and of Jesus Christ in a grove of trees near his home when he was 15 years old. But separate from that were these claims of visitations of angels. Now, the closest thing that I would regard to be a parallel between the Mormon story and the Muslim story is that the the angel who appeared to Joseph Smith told him, this is the angel Moroni, told him that this lost um, biography, to use a, a, a term here, of peoples who came from the land of Israel hundreds and, well, in, in, by his time, a couple thousand years earlier and more, that about 600 years before the time of Jesus, one particular group migrated from the land of Israel to the New World and landed in Mesoamerica, somewhere in perhaps Mexico or in Central America. Those are the two places that Mormons typically say is where the Book of Mormon um, narrative took place, or at least the bulk of it. And so the Lamanites and the Nephites settling in this area and going to war with each other and all that. So the record of these events, alleged events and alleged people and such, I don't believe any of it's true, but the record Joseph Smith purported was shown to him by this angel who appeared and told him that it was buried in a hill near where he lived called the Hill Cumorah. And the angel told him that it was there on this broad area of farmland that the Lamanites and the Nephites of old, these are the two major groups of people that are talked about in the Book of Mormon, that they fought a cataclysmic final battle in that area. And the Nephites, who were the good people, they perished en masse. And the Lamanites, who were the wicked people, they were the, the winners. And this massive battle with tens of thousands or if not hundreds of thousands of dead warriors strewn all over the place with weapons and armor and things, none of which was ever found by 
by um, archaeologists. But in any case, that angel said the record of these things is in this hill, and he showed him where to go and dig, and there was a box that had golden plates in it, and he eventually claims he translated that, and that became what we know today as the Book of Mormon. Now, there's so much more that one could say about that, but that's the essence of the story. So as to your question, because you asked about those two groups, that is that is about as close of a connection of an angel telling Joseph Smith about this written work, and the angel Gabriel allegedly reciting to Muhammad the things that are in the Quran. Now, if you're interested, there is a book. I actually bought it when it first came out, maybe 30 years ago. It's called Mormons and Muslims, and it's written by a Mormon scholar, Spencer Palmer. It's in my, It's been in my library forever. And it's an historical overview of the two groups, and he draws parallels between how Joseph Smith claimed to receive revelation and how Muhammad claimed to receive revelation. So if you're interested in a kind of more... I don't know, academic way of looking at it, that book might be worth your time. It, keep in mind, it is a Mormon book. It's promoting and defending that view, but at least it'll give you more to go on. I hope that helps, Harold. Thank you so much. I was just wondering, well, how would you discern if an angel is coming from God or from the devil? Yeah, we've seen that in... Uh, some of the lives of the saints to whom the devil would appear in the form of Jesus or Mary or a good angel or something. So there are different ways of of, uh, uh, smoking him out. Among them would be to say, you know, to if this is an angel appearing to you, to say, you know, say, praise be Jesus Christ now and forever, or some type of praise to Jesus. And in situations that I've read about the lives of the saints, they would quickly vanish and you know, interesting details like the devil would vanish and leave a stench of sulfur behind where he was pretending to be a good angel. So one thing is that the fallen angels are not going to praise Jesus. They're not going to say something positive about him. Uh, Another thing would be that if this alleged apparition, this entity that's appearing, is proposing things or saying things that you know are not true, then that's another tell that you can say this is not from God, this is this is a counterfeit, because this entity is saying things that are contrary to the gospel, like, well, you don't have to live a moral life, or you don't have to do this, or you can do that. Those would be tells that you can compare and contrast with the gospel. So if you're interested, another book is called Angels and Devils by Joan Carroll Cruz. C-R-U-Z, and that's a great introduction to all of this stuff. Thank you, Harold. Appreciate that. Let's go now to Jim in Los Alamitos, California. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Pastor. Uh, I'm, I'm currently reading and almost finishing uh, the, the book by uh, Burke Masters, mm-hmm. Father Burke Father Masters. Burke Masters. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and you were talking earlier about lucky charms and such. So let me just ask you, mm-hmm. what is your opinion on fate? Is is fate a real thing, and does God play a hand in it? Well, it is depending on how, in my view at least, it is depending on how you define it. So fate is not what some people think of as fatalism, which is where no matter what you do, the, the end has been pre-programmed, and you have no real agency. You don't have free will. You can't change the way things are. It's just set in stone, and, and you have to live with it. 
that's not the Christian understanding of what we would call divine providence. Divine providence is God's constantly unfolding plan for his creation. And that plan is affected by human free will choices, like Adam and Eve's in the garden. God's plan for them was that they would live free from illness and and from death, and they would have all the great preternatural gifts that God gave them originally. But through the human free will choice, God's providence unfolded in a different way that included sin and death and eventually the Savior coming to die on the cross to save those who would be saved, etc. The crucifixion is another example uh, where this was a sin, a terrible sin that was committed, but God brought good even out of that terrible sin in terms of the victory of Jesus. So I use those as examples to say God's plan of salvation that we call providence includes things that to us appear to be randomness, chance, good luck, fate, that kind of thing. I can also add to that that if God decrees that something happen a particular way, it will happen. So if, it, if it's by God's decree that a person should die in a certain way, okay, that's going to happen. We can talk about fate that way. But at the same time, I think it's far more the case that God permits things to happen that he doesn't decree, he doesn't want you to fall into sin, he doesn't want somebody to be damned, but he permits these things with what we call his permissive will. And so to us, when we're trying to make sense out of all this, we think, well, was it fate that Hitler rose to power and did all the terrible things that he did that led to World War II and the countless millions of people who died? Was that fate? No. That was a series of evil free will choices by human beings that snowballed and escalated and led to other things. And that's still within God's plan of providence. It's contrary to his will, but still part of it. So just because I'm looking at the clock here, I'll throw it back to you if you have any further questions, but there are some good videos on this very topic by the Thomistic Institute on YouTube. They're called Aquinas 101. So if you have a moment, Jim, I'd go on there and look up the Aquinas 101 videos on chance and fate and good luck and things like that. It'll, It'll take you much deeper than I have time to do. Yeah, the Aquinas uh, uh, on, on YouTube is, is fantastic. Uh, it, yeah. you, you, know, you don't have to answer it now, but maybe in the next segment. Your opinion on Dennis Prager's books, uh, The Rational Bible? Haven't read it. Um, I, I have generally high regard for Dennis Prager. He's a very clear thinker in most areas, but I think he gets it wrong, egregiously wrong, I'm afraid, in some areas. And um, so I would take issue with him on some things, but I do like him, and I think he's a... He seems to be a good man, and he's trying to do good work, so I don't fault him for any of those things. But ideologically, we would differ on a few things. Okay, so th- thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. I'll be right back. <laughs> 